Welcome to the Forest Garden Podcast, your guide to transforming your organic garden into a more sustainable, regenerative, and holistic edible landscape. This podcast combines expert interviews with recent plant discoveries and in-depth commentary to provide you the tools to grow a better world. If you are looking for experimental forest gardening solutions that adapt with our ever-changing climate, this podcast is for you. Get ready to dive into jam-packed episodes on perennial vegetables, food forest design, permaculture systems, and much more. Stay tuned for this episode of The Forest Garden with your hosts Ben Bishop and Mike Amato. Picture yourself in a forest where almost everything around you is food. Mature and maturing fruit and nut trees form an open canopy. If you look carefully, you can see fruit swelling on many branches, pears, apples, persimmons, pecans, and chestnuts. Shrubs fill the gaps in the canopy. They bear raspberries, blueberries, currants, hazelnuts, and other lesser known fruits, flowers, and nuts at different times of the year. Assorted native wildflowers, wild edible herbs, and perennial vegetables thickly cover the ground. You use many of these plants for food or medicine. Some attract beneficial insects, birds, and butterflies. Others act as soil builders or simply help keep out weeds. Here and there, vines climb on trees, shrubs, or arbors with fruit hanging through the foliage, hardy kiwis, grapes, and passionflower fruits. In sunnier glades, large stands of Jerusalem artichokes grow together with groundnut vines. These plants support one another as they store energy in their roots for later harvest and winter storage. Their bright yellow and deep violet flowers enjoy the radiant warmth from the sky. A passage from Edible Forest Gardens by Dave Jackie and Eric Tonesmeyer. Mike, what are we here to talk about? <laughs> that was beautiful, man. Oh, man. It's like you're describing what I want my backyard to be. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, today we want to cover some of the main important facets of the forest garden. And we're not going to talk about everything, but I'd say we're going to talk pretty in depth about the the big standouts, the things that we could think of as, you know, what the intro person who knows very little should know before they even start a forest garden. Yeah, I feel like it's a fairly under understood and underappreciated um, form of form of gardening. And it's and it's easy to basically just attach on and start to um, build in some forest gardening concepts into like a basic garden. And so we'll probably talk about that quite a bit today. But um, yeah, so to define what a forest garden is, it's, it's kind of difficult without actually going through, you know, the, the various layers of the forest garden, which is really the, the key difference between forest gardening and just either doing a garden or just an orchard, you know, those, those would be the two extremes and forest gardening is, is somewhere in the middle that helps to bridge that gap. So I guess the first place to start is the seven layers of the food forest. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's great to, to talk about this stuff, but sometimes it's nice to have a visual. So if you're a, a visual learner, you might want to Google seven layers of the food forest. So you can kind of see how, what this looks like, but um, I'll do my best to, to kind of describe them for you. And that passage we heard in the beginning sort of uh, does a good job at setting the scene. <clears throat> but to break it down further, I guess we'll start at the top. So 
the, the canopy, the overstory. So that's going to be the large fruit and nut trees mainly. There are other trees that can be, of course, in a food forest that aren't directly providing food to humans. But to understand the concept, it's great to think of, you know, pecans or American persimmon or, you know, mulberry trees that could that can grow fairly tall and provide basically the, the overstory, the, the maturity of the food forest, but they take a long time to grow. And then underneath the uh, large tree overstory, there can be the, the canopy understory. So those are uh, also trees or very tall shrubs. So that's going to be smaller fruit trees, nut trees, things like, let's see, hazelnuts or peaches, things that can grow. You know, it's going to depend on the the climate and the size of the food forest, but those don't tend to grow as as tall as the the overstory. And basically you can, in a food forest, you aren't planting all of these different layers in one spot and then a different spot. You're actually combining them together. You're integrating these different layers because they take up different vertical space. If you can imagine them, a tall tree next to a small, smaller tree, the smaller tree can nestle in, assuming that it can tolerate some of the shade. So that's, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway, so we have the, the tall uh, overstory canopy, the understory uh, canopy, or uh, also called the low tree layer under that can be shrubs. So basically any, any sort of woody or even herbaceous shrubs that can grow sometimes in the shade of the understory and the overstory. And sometimes these shrubs will be out in the open in full sun. So sure, things like blueberries or autumn olive, if you want to talk about taller, taller shrubs, currants, you know, there's, you know, fill in the blank. There's tons of options. Herbaceous plants, that can be anything from annual vegetables to perennial vegetables, herbs, pollinator uh, attracting plants, dynamic accumulators, which we'll talk about later. There's, it seems like in most climates, except maybe the tropics, there's your options as you go down from the overstory to the understory to the ground layer, start to expand. You have more, more options to, to plant in the herbaceous layer than the other, the other three. And then I like to think of the next one in, in terms of order as the ground cover layer. So, you know, a lot of times in orchards or even sometimes in forest gardens, people forget about the the ground layer, which could, you know, there's ground covers that are edible. There's sweet potato greens. There are uh, creeping raspberries that can be a ground cover, just really low growing plants that, that will not vine. They will not shade out anything. They can take up a niche that, you know, other plants can't take up or weeds will take up. So you need to plant something in there to, to prevent weed pressure from happening in your forest garden. Even below the ground, ground layer would be the root layer. So root vegetables. Now that, that's you know uh, debatable that you'd call that a layer because even root vegetables have an above ground portion. And so you, know, you could have a root, root vegetable that's a vine or a root vegetable that's herbaceous. And that could, that could look very, very different. But I think it's important to to mention in the seven layers of the food forest about the rhizosphere, because if you have different plants with similar root structures that take up the same 
location in the soil horizons that compete for nutrients and water in the same areas, that's not going to work. So you want to be able to combine compatible root structures together. And then the final uh, layer of the food forest, which I think is a really important one, is the uh, vertical or the vine layer. And I think it's, it's nice to, to look at it beyond just saying vines, because you, know, you, can, you can think of a food forest vertically and be growing plants that might be a ground cover, say, but you can grow them and train them up, or you could train trees or shrubs to grow tall when they want to grow wide. So it's a way to, to design a food forest so that you're maximizing space, because if you have a vine, like a passion flower vine, maypop vine, for example, if, it, if you let it, it will gr- grow along the ground. It's not really the healthiest for the plant, but many of them will, will grow. But your efficiency is going to be much better if you, if you train that vine up one of your trees, for example, or up a trellis. And so from a one square foot area, you can have you know, many, many times that area in leaf area and photosynthetic area, which is going to translate to products and, and foods and wildlife food. But if you aren't considering that, you may not really have that kind of efficient layer of efficiency. So vines in the food forest really help to connect the different layers together and really maximize that any unused solar space, it can capture all the sunlight that would otherwise go to waste. Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't have any way to say it better. I just planted some of those emeralds carpet raspberries today that you were talking about. One thing that I, I did think of is, I mean, in permaculture, we're frequently trying to, you know, create systems that replicate the forest. So the reason why we're explaining the seven layers of the food forest is that when you enter into, you know, a forest in your area or your region and you see what sort of understory trees are already there for example if you are in virginia a great understory tree that or you know even kentucky or other areas of the east coast pawpaws are a frequent understory tree so although we mentioned peaches frequently you won't see peaches necessarily in a forest environment they're frequently you know cultivated in full sun we often sort of undervalue understory trees in forests that we interact with. And when we're designing our food forests, you really want to think about how the seven layers interact with the things that we could be planting now. So if we seed out pawpaws into a forest garden, knowing that it'll be a great understory tree in several years, when the trees that are in the overstory sort of die back, then that'll open up light for the pawpaws to, to keep growing. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that, that's really kind of popped into my head during your talk. But overall, I think it was, it was great. So one thing I'd like to talk about is the mycelial network, which is very much present in the forest or in the forest garden. It is sort of like the underground internet of, of mushroom knowledge. It's a vast network of fungal connections, sort of like a multicellular network that transmit signals and transports nutrients that are required between different plants in that system or in that forest over incredibly long distances that we're just sort of coming to understand now or in the past, like, I don't know, 15 years, maybe. So basically, as we know, mycelium can recycle 
dead organic matter, such as, you know, trees or dead animals or pretty much anything that's dead or dying on the forest floor it is recycled back into that system or broken down by mycelium. Without mycelium, we'd be an earth covered with dead things, <laughs> which would not be too great. Uh, mycelium also acts as a connector between plant roots of multiple types of species. It helps trees and plants communicate over incredibly long distances and maintain a balanced and healthy ecosystem through these connections. If one tree is really stressed out because it's being browsed by deer, the other trees in the area can use mycelium to support that tree, which is insane to think about. It's this, you know, underground secret life of plants that we don't fully understand. Even, even the scientists who are actively making new discoveries admit that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands, potentially at least thousands of new discoveries that can be made regarding mycelium. We should think of it as the way that trees communicate with one another, and we should also think of it as sort of an underground structure holding everything in the forest together, sort of like as a giant backbone support system. If you have wood chips on your property and you sort of peel back some of those wood chips, it's pretty likely you'll find white strands of root-like structure on some of the oldest decaying wood chips. And that is mycelium. It looks like roots. You might have pulled something back in a wood chip or a decaying area like with leaves, the old fall leaves and thought that you were disturbing roots. In fact, it's much more likely to be mycelium and that mycelium is breaking down that dead brown material, you know, whether it be leaves or wood chips. Trees, as I've already mentioned, trees that are, you know, a totally different species use the mycelium network to share nutrients. However, I should mention that these are most commonly native trees to the area that the mycelium is existing in. And I'm not totally sure how this compares when you plant a non-native tree into a forest garden that has primarily native trees that all already understand each other through their mycelial network. I'm not sure that there's been an, you know, an incredible amount of research done sort of testing how natives versus non-natives interact, but I have heard that non-natives sort of almost like speak a different language in a way. So in general, when you plant a native species into an ecosystem that where, you know, where those sort of plants are already present, they generally will be, they'll just do a lot better. And that's true pretty much across the board. But what you should essentially take away from, what you should take away from this is that in the forest garden, mycelium is essential. As stewards of the land, we should probably be integrating mycelium into the soils in our gardens, into cultivated and non-cultivated areas of our properties starting like yesterday. Everyone can purchase mushroom spawn in either you know, as a grain spawn or as a sawdust spawn and, and just lay it out under some dead leaves on your property. If you collect, if you use leaves as a mulch or on fresh wood chips that you have dropped off by your local forest service. Mycelium is incredibly important to soil health. So, and the benefit at the end is you get to eat the mushrooms that grow from it. If you chose a mycelium that has edible mushrooms such as King Strafaria, it's just something that we, are still coming to understand and something that is so incredibly important to the health of plants. So mushroom would be the defined as the fruiting body, typically um, as the fruiting body of uh, the mycelial network of the, of the organism that lives mainly underground or in a tree um, or in decaying matter. 
So when you harvest a mushroom, you're really harvesting the reproductive organs of that organism. But um, when we say mycelium, you can think of that as the roots of the, or actually maybe more accurately would be the, the body, the, the real tissue, the main part of the, the fungus is underground, like I said, or in, or in trees or, or rotting material. Um, and then micro, mycorrhiza specifically is the term for the relationship between the tree or the plants or the shrub, whatever it is, and the mycelium um, that's underground. So the mycorrhizal, myco, you know, meaning the, the fungus and the rhizo, meaning the root, it's that, that joint relationship. And in some cases, the mycelium, the, the roots of the fungus will actually go inside of the root of the tree. And um, it's used, the term is infect, but in some cases, like you were talking about, Mike, was it's, it can be a really beneficial thing to, for the tree to be infected by this, by this fungus. Okay, so I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so moving to uh, permaculture, that'll be our next term that we define. There's different definitions. Toby Hemingway used the term ecology applied. But I'm looking up the actual definition of permaculture which is an approach to land management and philosophy that adopts arrangements observed in flourishing natural ecosystems. That's, that's the Wikipedia for permaculture. And I think Bill Mollison has a, has a different definition that involves the ideas of permanent, permanent design, basically permanent culture. But the way I look at it is as the decision-making toolkit is probably the best way to put it that derives its logic and its nature from from ecosystems, from observations and looking at the natural world, how does nature solve problems and how can we align our problem-solving skills and critical thinking skills and decision-making off of those ecological principles and those natural principles. And so, you know, there's plenty of information out there for people to look up if they want to know more about permaculture, but there's, you know, a set of principles, there's a set of ethics, uh, which is earth care, people care, and some people call it fair share, or share the surplus, which is the third one. It's really what gets a lot, lot of people interested in regenerative agriculture or uh, landscape design, or you know, you name it, agroforestry. Um, it's a gateway that people, many people go through, and their lives are changed, or their minds are changed, or hearts are changed. However, you want to look at it, and then they end up in a very different path than when they when they go in, uh, in a in a good way. They're they're able to sort of see, connect all the dots between, you know, what we need to do to, to help repair the earth, but also permaculture, like I said, it's a toolkit. You can use permaculture to make life decisions or relationship decisions. Uh, you can expand it out however far you want, but typically it's a nature-based design. Like people make, make their gardens, like, you know, they design their land using permaculture. I couldn't have said that better either. I, uh, I'm consistently impressed. Yeah, I've never heard of using permaculture in sort of like a, uh, for, you know, greater beyond stewardship of the land, but it'd be very interesting to sort of use, you know, the permaculture sort of like design system in a different facet of our lives that is unrelated to, unrelated to. One, uh, one thing in the garden, one plant having one purpose, you know, maybe that plant, you think of it as, okay, it's providing food, it's providing shade, it's a nitrogen fixer. But I can also use it as a trellis to grow, you know, a vine crop up, you know, uh, 
Uh, and it's also a windbreak, you know, you're, and so when you're making design decisions, instead of thinking uh, of a one-to-one ratio, you're thinking, well, in nature, you know, everything serves many, many roles. So, you know, there's many ways you can think of that in your life, you know, having redundancies, you can design your house to have more than one source of water in case one of them goes down, you know? Yeah, I guess house to, or in general, architecture or the whole field of architecture and uh, especially, I mean, designing your house and designing how your house works and functions in a somewhat sustainable, even, you know, which direction it's facing, I guess, is definitely a huge permacultural principle, but I've just never, I've never thought of it that way until now. And yeah, uh, so I guess I should uh, jump into the zone system of permaculture design. This is going to be a bit of a long explanation. But I think I'm just trying to cram as much of what I've personally have experienced with my own land also into sort of the generic explanation that someone might give you. So as Ben was describing, permaculture is essentially a design toolkit. And the zone system of permaculture design is essentially thinking of your land as, as a system of zones starting from zero to five, with zero being your house. Zero, you know, zero is your home itself, which ideally should be designed with sustainability in mind. This doesn't mean that your need, your home needs to be passive solar or you know an earthship, but it should be. It's usually built with a south-facing sort of heat-trapping design in mind. And you know, once again, this is ideally. If your home doesn't fit these parameters, it's okay. In the ideal setup, your home would be built so that it maximizes sort of the natural energy of the site from the sun. Or, you know, the water, if, you know, you live on a slope, sort of capturing the water and storing it or any other resources that might be available on your site and essentially minimizing the need for outside energy inputs. So using, you know, building your home in a certain way that it keeps all of these sort of tips or these ideas in mind when you're constructing it or when you're designing it, it's all connected with the outer zones. And it's very important to just start from the beginning with your house itself. Something to consider would be the placement of your kitchen in relation to the other elements of the outer zones that you'll be interacting with. For example, you know, if your kitchen is on the south side of your house and has an entryway or several entryways, maybe that entryway leads into an unheated greenhouse that you know you grow interesting plants in right next to your garden in a sort of zone or several different type of zone, like a climate zone step up to cultivate those vegetables that you might want to have access to year round or almost year round right next to your kitchen. And then outside of that greenhouse is a herb garden with all the culinary herbs that you want to have access to all the time in your kitchen. Basically the whole organization of the design elements of the zone system is on the basis of frequency of either you you, the inhabitants, your use of the different elements like plants or whatever interactions you're going to have on your site, whether that's interacting with animals, like if you have chickens, but it's also based on the needs of those animals themselves and potentially the plants. So if the plants need to be pruned certain times of year, you're probably only going to prune them once a year. So they'll be far out on your property versus something that needs a lot more management would be placed closer to zone zero, your house. So frequently managed or harvested plants or elements of your design are generally kept within zones zero, one, and two. Remember thinking thinking of zone zero being our house and just moving out from there within 
10 to 20 feet per zone from one to five. Less frequently harvested or managed, managed elements like potentially rhubarb or a pear tree can be farther away from your house because you're not going to visit them that often. And we'll get into this a little bit more once we go through the later zones like two, three, and four, and five. So I started with zone zero, which is your house. Zone one, the things, will, zone one will be all the things on your property that require frequent attention. The th generally the things that you like to eat the most or that require constant care, which I've already mentioned, could be an herb garden, greenhouse, perhaps cold frames, uh, raised beds for your kitchen garden, salad crops that you like to use all the time, or really whatever foods that you like to eat hundreds of times a year, something that you're going to be visiting throughout the entire growing season. If this is rosemary for you, then you'll plant that in zone one. You'll plant it right up against your house, maybe right outside the door of your kitchen. Another thing to consider is that on the south side of your house will be sort of a warmer microclimate. So you should consider planting tender perennials or plants that are not reliably hardy in your climate, perhaps right up against the south side of your house or perhaps within five to 10 feet of it. Similarly, you should also kind of consider your driveway as a microclimate that can retain heat assuming that it's stone or that it's uh, asphalt, that it will retain heat and benefit half-hardy plants or trees you're considering in your landscape. For example, figs. I've been experimenting with planting figs in zone one and also in sort of the warm microclimate next to my driveway. Generally, everything that you plant in, in zone one, you, you're planting it there because you don't have to walk too far from your house to interact with it. So this is another place that you might put your hen house or your duck palace if you choose to raise ducks. Because early in the morning when you wake up, you're not going to want to you know, trek 100 feet in the cold to go harvest eggs. You want it to be relatively close to your home so that it's a short journey to get that done, considering you're going to be doing it, you know, perhaps half of the year or, you know, how frequent, how, depending on how many hens or uh, ducks you have. The idea being that you want it close so that you can access it frequently and easily. And you also have to clean it and, you know, you don't want to have to have it be out of sight and out of mind. Another thing to consider when you have, let's say you do have a hen house or a duck palace in zone one, you also want to have it in a zone closer to your house because, of the potential for your chickens being eaten by predators that could exist farther away from your house in sort of the wild zone and perhaps zone four or five. Anything that is closer to your home is also going to be generally more protected by the activity of you and anyone else in the area. So pests like rabbits might be less likely to eat them, etc. So zone two, moving outwards from zone one, just think of another 20 feet circle in your, on your property moving outward. Here you would plant things that require less care or maintenance. It's a great place for perennials that only require attention a few times throughout the year, such as blueberries, raspberries, currants, or perennial, some perennial vegetables. Perennial vegetables like rhubarb or sorrel exist very well in zone two. This is also where you might choose to locate a larger scale market garden or a garden that just you're going to visit frequently several times a week, but not every single day. This is also a possible place for beehives or perhaps a shade garden where you could have things like mushroom production on shiitake, you know, shiitakes on logs, etc. Zone three, it really kind of becomes up to you. Zone three could be your orchard. It's, you know, you could have peaches or apples, 
You could also plant your orchard in zone two. Once again, you know, at this point, it really depends on your needs and the things that you like and the things that you're going to visit the most. But personally, I'd rather have it a little bit farther from my home. Perhaps my compost area would live in zone three. Zone three could be where you plant all of your beneficial and medicinal perennial plants, tea plants, beneficial shrubs, pawpaws. Let's say you want to have a pawpaw patch on your property. It doesn't need to be right next to your house. Pawpaws only ripen once a year and they don't require very much maintenance at all. You could even push it back a zone. Beehives could also be located here as well as mushroom production, which I've already mentioned. It's really up to you. Everyone's design will be curated based on their specific wants and needs. And zone three also you should think of as like the last space that is a really a curated space that you're going to be actively visiting. Zone four is considered as the sort of semi-wild area of your property. Ideally, you'd have an established woodlands on your property that is perhaps 100 to 150 feet from your house or somewhat closer. It's just a general, you know, it could be 75 feet from your house. But it, it essentially is an area that you might lightly manage, but the wildness is primarily kept intact. For example, you might source wild ramp seed and broadcast it throughout zone four or do the same with watercress seed or cuttings in wet areas. You know, those are both natives to the, to the Northeast where, where I live. So planting or broadcasting seed like that would only benefit yourself and the forest. You wouldn't be introducing any sort of invasive species, but it would just be sort of a light management. You're broadcasting seed. If that seed grows, great. If it doesn't, oh well. Beneficial natives should be encouraged and invasive plants should essentially be avoided. Zone four is an area that is meant for foraging and collecting of wild foods, as well as collection of timber and other needed resources in small amounts. Just because it's semi-wild doesn't mean that you can't improve upon this area. Bat boxes can be put up to improve bat populations, mason bees. You can put up homes for mason bees or uh, cavity nesting birds, or even owl boxes or wood duck boxes. Depending on the nature of the pre-existing natural environment, it'll really kind of craft what you want to put there. If you have a problem with rodents, for example, you know, encouraging barn screech or barred owls or other predatory birds to move into the wild fringes of your property would be a huge benefit to the landscape. If you have problems with, you know, pollination, for example, on some of your orchard trees, creating a habitat for mason bees would also probably be a good move. Furthermore, I, I guess I'm thinking of my own site, you know, you have to be aware of residents who are already there. You might, have wild turkeys, which, you know, are actually wild turkeys are really helpful. They might, they'll eat the ticks on your property. You want them around. You don't want to scare them away. Uh, same thing with bats. Bats eat tens of thousands of mosquitoes, you know, thousands of mosquitoes in an evening. You know, so build more bat boxes. And if you're swarmed by mosquitoes, then all the more reason. On my property, every spring, when I listen to them every night, there's this den of coyotes that comes back every year. It's like a mama and a papa coyote. And they have babies every single year in the same area of the zone four, zone five area. That is the furthest extent of the woods behind my house. And I want them there. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's a little scary perhaps for some people to have coyotes in the area, especially if you're a dog owner, but generally they keep to themselves. And one thing that they benefit my landscape, you know, they benefit my landscape by keeping the rabbit population and rodent populations down. Otherwise, I'd probably have a lot more rabbits and, you know, rabbit pressure and, and vole pressure, et cetera. And then zone five in the zone system is the fully wild area. There's no human intervention. Essentially, you just 
allow the forest to do its thing and listen to, you know, the coyotes howl while you fall asleep at night. The, the difference between zone, zone four and five, I generally think of as the edges of the forest. Like, let's say, you know, the whole like measurement of you know, 10 to 20 feet per zone or maybe 30 feet per zone, it's all variable. It all depends on how you interact with your landscape. And so for me, zone four is pretty much just the edge of the tree line of the forest and then maybe 10 feet in and then everything else is zone five because I'm not going to realistically harvest anything from the forest except perhaps once a year in a foraging sort of interaction farther than perhaps 10 or 15 feet into that forest area, realistically more like five to 10 feet in. So these are all considerations that you should take into account. Even if your, your site doesn't have forest on it, some of you know the, the best part about forest gardening is you're essentially creating a forest. So in those fringes of your landscape, you could perhaps start planning to plant things that are going to grow into an overstory relatively quickly. And that area will eventually become the wild fringe area of your landscape. And that's pretty much all I got. Ben, if you want to add anything, please do. I know that it was like a long, long explanation, that was the most but I'm interested comprehensive in of the zone system, probably even more, more than a, a typical permaculture course. That, that was great. The only thing I would add is I liked how you said, you know, it's not necessarily like strictly distance from your house. It's, it's a matter of fr like frequency of use. So you could have, you know, a zone three or something right by your house, like a side yard of your house, because you never go there. And that would be kind of considered a zone three. But meanwhile, if you have to walk up to your house from your driveway or from wherever you park and you're walking back and forth, it doesn't matter if it's a bit further away from your house, you're going to see that several times a day. So you're going to be, you know, monitoring those plants, seeing if they need water, maybe they need weeding. And so it's not a matter of distance, it's a matter of, of use, which I think you covered well, and then the other thing is, you know, if you don't have to necessarily have a 10 acre property to, to make use of all the different zones. I mean, I had a quarter or like a, more like an eighth actually in my last uh, house where I had my forest garden and there were areas that I never went in and the way back there, and they actually had mature trees, even in a small little property, there were mature trees there. And then there was understory and there was brush and that acted as my zone five. And then there were areas coming that were adjacent to that, that I counted as my four, my three, my two, my one. So and even, even if you're in an apartment and you're growing in your balcony, you can start thinking of zones, you know, as maybe your neighbors or your community or your work. Maybe you can start, maybe there's a place you can plant some, uh, either do some gorilla planting, gorilla grafting, or, or convince someone else to, to plant trees on their property if you don't have them. And that's part of your, your zone system. It's just a, just a way to kind of abstract it a little bit more for people who might not have have land yeah good point with the that's something i guess i really should have i guess it's hard to mentally map it out but it, the point that you made where it isn't necessarily just concentric circles you know you should think about your zone one or your zone two as perhaps that trail that you walk from your parking pad to your front door and that's i don't know if i've actually thought about it that in depth because if i was going to lay out a more exact zone system on my property it really would be a bunch of squiggles you know it wouldn't be concentric circles at all also in terms of you know i mean i'm on a 0.6 acres which is pretty perfect for the home garden starting out you know once you move larger than an acre it definitely becomes a lot more time intensive 
But in a 0.6 acre lot, there's definitely all five plus zero zones that are that I'm actively thinking about their function constantly. And that's true of any size. So, you know, what you said in a, let's say if it's an eighth of an acre or if it's four acres, all of these principles still apply. Yeah. And I especially like the, the idea of the, um, the apartment complex too, because like, you know, zone three or even zone two could be like your community roof garden, perhaps mm-hmm. if you were in some sort of epic hipster community or something like that but then i was trying to think of what like zones three and four and five would be anyways sorry you were gonna say well i wanted to to maybe try to uh ask you about something you're doing in your garden um and i'm not sure which zone you would call this but your dougal culture uh bed that's pretty unique when you showed me that when i visited Uh, i I mean there are plenty of people have been talking about hugo culture but i don't see it done too too often at least in the the scale that you're doing it. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So that is definitely an interesting intersection with the, uh, the zone system. I chose to put my Hugel culture mounds in zone one or zone two, sort of melding between zone one and zone two, but you could think of it as zone one, but I, in, at my property, because it is rather small, I think of zone one as like everything that's planted within like, five feet of a front door and it's definitely at least like 20 to 30 paces to get to the hugel mounts that i created hugel culture is a german word that basically just translates like to hill culture or hill mound and it's constructed from decaying wood or debris and other compostable biomass plant materials basically after it cures for a year or so you can plant it out as a raised bed and the reason why you let it cure is uh well i'll get into that later because i'm getting ahead of myself but basically it's a really old technique for raised bed gardening that has the added benefit of a large mass of decaying woody material in the center that retains water longer than regular soil might it basically allows the roots of plants to latch onto these large decaying logs that are in the center of your raised bed and other woody materials. The, you know, these, the roots will latch onto these woody materials and they'll draw nutrients from them, or at least they'll draw available moisture and water from them. I, my first encounter, I guess, with Hugo culture was actually in like a three gallon pot where I planted peppers and I used old dead sticks from my property to tie them up with, to keep them, from falling over if it got windy. And then months later, when I removed the sticks, I found that the plants had latched all of their roots onto them, just like sucking them dry because they were just full. So full, these like carbon, even just like skinny sticks, they're just, they'd stay moist for much longer than the soil would dry out sitting out on, um, on a blacktop, you know, driveway, but the wood in there would still retain moisture. So they were just hugging them. The roots were just, you know, drawing just about everything they could (laughs) from those little sticks. So, when, when building a hucoculture mound, you basically have a, a, like a few options. You can dig into the soil about a foot deep and bury large logs and then pile up compost materials on top of that and other woody masses in sort of like a lasagna style. Or you can simply just not dig into the soil at all, which is what I did and would also probably recommend. And then pile logs, like rotting logs and compost materials of all sorts on top of that in a raised mound. 
And then eventually you top that with several inches of soil, preferably three to five or more inches of soil on top of it. And then on top of that, you would just put a mulch to cover the soil. So it's not bare soil that the sun is just beating down on all the time. The, the most important thing is to primarily include wood that has already started the process of decay and wood that is kind of long and large, has a lot of surface area, but it's not, bro you know, it's not broken up into a little million pieces. People use wood chips and just fail horribly. You don't want tons of small logs cut into little pieces. You know, long, already dead and decaying logs will work best. The last thing you want to do is fill a hole with like freshly cut firewood and freshly harvested woody materials and just cover it with soil. Something to consider is that termites can be an issue if you use wood that is not already decayed or decaying. And in general, you should put, you shouldn't put your hugel mound like right up against your house or even relatively close to your house if you have any concern about termites. Personally, I don't have any concern about termites. I kind of double and triple check to make sure that that wouldn't be a thing. My house does no like wood to wood contact or wood to ground contact. Termites need like a specific way to get into your house. And in my house, that was just not a concern. So I have mine relatively close to my house. I was thinking of them sort of as raised beds rather than as this um, soil building activity that would exist sort of like far out in my landscape. So your Hugo mound doesn't have to be a mound necessarily. It can be a raised bed where you use the principles of Hugo mound culture or Hugo culture and adapt it somewhat. What I chose to do was use large 25 foot trees with varying diameters of like three to seven inches and stack them to create a frame of a raised bed about like four feet wide. And these were 25 feet long, about a foot and a half feet, like a foot and a half high. Then I used wood that was in extreme state of decay to fill the mound, avoiding freshly cut or felled wood. And I put that inside of it instead of on the edges. I used mostly green wood to, as the support structure along the sides as much as I could. And I used posts hammered into the ground to support everything and keep it in place. Then over the course of the fall and the winter, because I did this in September, I continuously added to the interior with rotting wood, fall leaves, grass cuttings, woody materials, decaying anything from shrubs and smaller trees, any compost materials from my house, like food scraps, I would add on occasion, but that you generally don't want to do that because it could attract rodents. And I actually sourced a massive amount of coffee grounds for my local coffee shop to add. In the spring, I purchased several yards of topsoil to add to the mounds because you want there to be at least three to four inches, as I said, on top of, you know, soil on top of all of this uh, woody decaying material. And then I had my local forest service drop off several loads of wood chips and I topped it with the wood chips. So basically by, by using already decaying material and starting in the fall and letting the, the Hugel culture mounds get rained on and snowed on all winter long, you've already started curing your mound for planting in the spring. Otherwise, if you, if you were to do this perhaps in the summer or if you used wood that wasn't so old, you would have to wait to plant anything into it because it's unlikely that your plants would really enjoy that first year of being planted into this very strange, highly active carbon nitrogen stealing environment. Be very hot. So, yeah, it would get hot. It'd be composting down and, and it still can be hot, but basically you want to start this project in the fall and then top it in the spring and then plant it out. And you might want to plant a cover crop like alfalfa and then um, get rid of that alfalfa, put it back into the soil to benefit a big nitrogen boost. Because, I mean, so like I made mine as a secure raised bed and I didn't have to plant a cover crop like alfalfa to secure the soil into place. That's another thing that it does via its root systems. 
like as a sort of soil stabilization thing. It was less of a concern for me. That said, your first year, all of this, it still might be sketchy. Then the first year, the sort of action of all this stuff breaking down might not be the best uh, situation for your plants. That's why it's important to put uh, like a big layer of soil on top of all this decaying material. Basically, as a rule of thumb, if you put like, let's say you put in like eight inches of all of this decaying uh, leaves and woody, woody stuff, you want to have probably six to eight inches of soil on top of that. The first year might be sketchy, but after the first year, you'll have an incredibly intense super bed that is like way better than miracle Grow <laughs> or any uh, weird uh, fertilizers you might use. Think of this as like this super powered battery that is just going to keep getting better and better and better as the years come. For the first year, the decaying wood might zap nitrogen from your plants. So, you know, that's why I said to put in that nitrogen rich material like coffee grounds that could act as like a counteractive measure. Uh, I would also recommend planting nitrogen fixing plants or shrubs into the mound, but definitely not trees. The mound is going to sink over time. Certain plants like trees and some perennial vegetables such as asparagus really don't like the sinking effect. Others are less bothered by it. So far, I've only planted perennials into my Hugo mounds, but you should always just keep this in mind when you're selecting what plants to put in there. Trees should generally be, pl be planted alongside your Hugo mound and they'll send their roots into the soil beneath it and benefit greatly from that giant decaying mass. The process of decaying or composting materials beneath your soil layer, as Ben already stated, it, it, it will heat up the soil to some degree, which actually may benefit some of the plants that you're planting into it. And some like it better than others. That's also something to look into. In general, you should aim to plant drought tolerant plants in the center of the mound where it dries out the, fast, the fastest and less drought tolerant plants on the sides of the mound or if it's a raised bed, it, ladder, it doesn't matter as much, but there still will probably be some sort of raised area in the center. And that's where I chose to plant my uh, drought tolerant plants. It also makes sense to plant beneficial attractors or nitrogen fixtures in the center and food crops on the edges so that you have more access to the food crops. If you're building it on a hillside, you generally want it to be perpendicular to the slope so that it catches water and stores it better. It's interesting to sort of reach in and check to see, uh, you know, really advanced Hugo Mounds. You can look in and see how the roots have attached to these logs and just start using them as like a life resource. And it's sort of the same way that sometimes plants will underground trees will send their roots and they'll wrap around water pipes because the water pipes will like condense or release moisture. And it's the same, it's the same concept essentially, except those plants aren't breaking into the, the pipe and like destroying it over time as they might be with these large logs. So I like to just think of it as a battery and over as the years go on, it gets, it holds the charge much better. Sort of the opposite of the, uh, the consumer battery that is, you know, you throw away after however many uses. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's my spiel. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting that you know you're you're trying it out this year. And, and you did you put them in last year? Was that when you installed them? So yeah, I started building them in the late summer, and really kind of got them going in the fall. And then over the course of the whole winter and like late fall, I just kept adding. You know, basically, you'll just keep adding stuff and it'll lower down and then you just keep piling and piling it on until uh, you've run out of space to pile. And now they're looking pretty good. They're all planted out and I'm excited. And are you expecting to have to weed less because there's not going to be that much grass pressure coming up through the, through the wood chips and then also water less because 
they're going to be the wood chips and the wood that's that's inside is going to be holding on to moisture for longer, like a sponge. Yeah. So that's the whole idea for this year though. And I should mention, I decided to put them in the place where on my lawn, it, the grass burns out every year. So I thought, okay, this would be a good place to put this sort of moisture retentive battery Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, the grass dies and it gets a lot of sun. But for the first year, unfortunately, I think I will be watering a lot more than I'd like to. And then in years to come, once it really starts, you know, once it's fully cured and once it really starts to get going in terms of breaking down faster and whatnot, I will probably stop watering altogether. Amazing. And yeah, I look forward to it. I prob- I'm not going to irrigate, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to set up irrigation lines or anything like that, but I'll just probably be paying closer attention to it for the first year. Great. Yeah. The, uh, the only so other, uh, I would add in is, is when, if you're in an area where you have some slope, you can actually create your Hugel mound on a contour and a contour line, which is really common in a lot of permaculture designs, but really in all sorts of landscape uh, designing where um, if it's on contour and you have a slope, uh, when the rainwater runoff hits the Hugel culture bed, it's going to spread across that entire length of that contoured bed and soak into the wood and soak into the ground as opposed to running off site or causing erosion down, down the slope. Yes. And Sepp Holzer's design, it would be a great one to check out for anyone who's interested in that. A really great example of how he, you know, create used Hugel mounds to do exactly that in like the Austrian Alps. All right. What's next. We've got polyculture next. So a good way to think about polyculture is the opposite of monoculture, of course. I think people are more con- more uh, re- recognizing uh, monoculture because they hear about it in documentaries or they see it when they're driving around, the monoculture of corn, the monoculture of soy, uh, whatever it is. Not only are monocultures fields of the same plants, the same species, oftentimes it's the same cultivar or at least the same type. So you're basically having clones in many cases for the entire field, the entire 10 acres, 20 acres, 100 acres, whatever it is. It can be incredibly productive and it can be incredibly easy to manage because everything ripens together. Everything requires the nutrients the same time, the water the same time. But then there's the, the downside because the problem with monoculture is that, well, there's many, but one is pest pressure. So as, you know, as soon as a disease, a virus, a fungus, a insect figures out how to break into the defenses of that. Cause every, you know, every plant, every cultivar, every clone, every type of living thing has a way for some sort of pest or pressure uh, or vector to come in and cause damage. And that's part of ecology, you know, everything eats something else. And so as soon as a organism is able to figure out how to attack or infect that clone, that one, that one specific plant, now it actually has access. It will start to multiply very rapidly and can spread very, very quickly throughout the entire area. And so that's, that's an issue with monoculture. And that's why it's, it leads to a lot of spraying. And in some cases, a lot of loss if farmers don't keep up with, with spraying and the various treatments. And then also monocultures don't provide any habitat for, for wildlife. Even, you know, even if we talk about a monoculture of trees, like, of course, trees are great, 
But if you're growing the same species and again, the same clone of a tree for your entire farm, 20 acres, 30 acres, okay, you might have some wildlife that gets attracted into that, but it's not going to be very much because you know, you really want to find in permaculture, they talk a lot about edge where one layer meets another layer or edges between two different biospheres or ecosystems. But in the monoculture, you don't have that. You just have one block and there's not a lot of interface between different layers or different uh, environments. So it's going to be very limited in terms of the wildlife and the biodiversity that it can support. So the solution, of course, is the opposite, which is polyculture, which basically just means anything more than one type of plant in, a, in an ecosystem. I think in terms of agriculture or in terms of growing food, the first example of a polyculture, and it's a great, I've never actually grown this particular combination before, but it's a great example of what, what a polyculture can be, is the, the three sisters polyculture. And this is a, an annual example, but there are perennial examples of, of uh, these types of polycultures where it consists of, uh, it's a Native American technique might, might be the Iroquois. I can't remember exactly which first people were, maybe multiple were, were using this technique, but you have corn grown with uh, beans, various types of nitrogen fixing beans. And then you have squash or pumpkins basically growing together in the same plot. And so corn acts as the, uh, the trellis for the beans to climb up. The beans are, are sequestering nitrogen for you know, the, the rest of the plants, you know, the, the nitrogen fixing plants use nitrogen for a certain part of the year, but they release it during other parts of the year throughout the seasons. It's actually gonna be a net benefit to um, all the other plants to have nitrogen fixtures in the system. But in this case, we're talking about beans and they fix nitrogen into the, into the ground for the surrounding plants to use. And then the squash or pumpkins or anything from the curcubitaceae family usually have very wide thick leaves that can cover the ground and keep moisture in and keep the weeds from coming up. And so the benefits of that, of the system, this combination is not only, you know, do you get the benefit of the nitrogen and the, the mulching effect of having the, the squash or pumpkins around, but also in the same area, it's very likely that you're going to get a higher, what's called in science, they call it the, the LER or the land equivalency ratio, uh, where if you were to that, if you were to grow those three things separately and that same piece of land, you would you would have a certain amount of yield. But if you grow them together, potentially you could have over yielding occur, where you're you might be getting less corn, less squash, less beans, right per per acre. But overall, you're getting a higher amount of calories from that same that same spot. So polycultures, if designed correctly, the one I study uh, is just a simple polyculture of two species, but it, in its simplicity, it means it can scale a little bit easier as we start to try to incorporate polycultures into you know, our agricultural system is black walnut trees and winter wheat, because the black walnut leaves out very late in the, in the spring. And that allows the winter wheat that was planted much earlier to ripen up a crop before the shade is before the shade is there. And so that's, you know, that's just two species, but you know, you could be putting hay or other species during the summer after the wheat is harvested. And even that is so much better than just walnuts with bare ground underneath or a monoculture of just wheat. You're going to see ecosystems, novel ecosystems starting to occur in those polycultures. But if we were to look at the, 
you know, the extreme case, which is a very good extreme case, which is multi-strata agroforestry, which is a food forest, that's also considered a polyculture because you have not one, not two, but seven, you know, a hundred different plants in one, one area. And if designed correctly, like I was saying before, they can be productive and, and actually a lot more productive than, uh, you know, monoculture systems. But of course, on the flip side, if, if they aren't designed carefully or managed properly, they can be very unproductive and actually, you know, potentially have a lot of competition between the different plants. So I think the future is perennial and the future is polyculture. Uh, I don't think that there's a way that we can continue agriculture the way it is using monoculture for very long because it has such an intensive system that requires a lot of inputs. And like you, like I was describing with the three sisters technique by incorporating more species, not only is it good from a biodiversity standpoint, but it also is going to fill some of those inputs. So we might not need as much fertilizer or as much water as we otherwise would. From a gardener perspective, from someone who's trying to use polycultural, what does that look like? Well, you know, you don't have to plant out this dense multi-strata food forest. It could just, if you want to incorporate some of these ideas of polyculture, you know, you could be planting in your, maybe you have a raised bed, maybe you have a section of your yard that you use for, for gardening, you know, maybe, maybe trying to increase the amount of species and not just, you know, annual vegetables, but maybe starting to plant some blueberries around the edges of your garden or on the North side, planting some Jerusalem artichokes or, or sunflowers or something that can provide you with some, some food, but that's, that's going to increase the diversity, increase the layers of your garden, but also provide, you know, biodiversity for wildlife and actually increase the efficiency of how you use your land. And then I guess I should also dive a little bit more into one of the things I just mentioned, which is the, the nitrogen fixation aspect. So nitrogen's all around us. Nitrogen is in the air. It's the main component of air. And unfortunately, there's this issue, right? There's this issue of plants really need ni nitrogen and there's nitrogen in, let's see, I, I'm not a chemist, but I think it's nitrous, nitrous oxide in the air. And there might be some free nitrogen as well, uh, but there's a form of it's nitrate and nitrite in the soil that the plants will use up. And it's a limiting factor. Some soils are very depleted of nitrogen, but the plants need that to grow. Plants use nitrogen to form the, uh, the proteins in their structure. And it's, it's important for vegetative growth of the plant. And, and so if you don't have enough nitrogen, you're not going to have healthy plants. So how does the nitrogen from the air get into the soil? And that's through, that's through bacteria. There's species of bacteria that can convert that process, that, that air form into the soil form, right. To, to break it down in a real simple way. And, you know, humans can do that too. We've figured out how to, to convert the, the nitrogen that's in the air into the form that we can use to feed our plants through the Haber-Bosch process, the Haber-Haber-Bosch process. But it's incredibly energy intensive. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And we're not really sure. I don't think anyone really knows specifically how bacteria are able to do it on a much more efficient scale. It's pretty amazing that there's bacteria that can do that. And 
maybe I think life as we know it would not be the same if, if they didn't have that magical little property. So to, to utilize that in our gardens, uh, instead of needing to fertilize like a typical gardener would, and yes, composting is great. Yes, you know, using uh, organic fertilizers can be very helpful, but we can start to think about other ways to provide plants with nitrogen. And thankfully, there are plants that we can choose to incorporate in our system. And almost on every one of those layers that we talked about originally, you can go through and find nitrogen fixing trees and or nitrogen fixing shrubs. And that would mean it's a species that forms an association with that species of bacteria. And by doing so, it, it's going to start increasing the amount of nitrogen that's in the system. But the, the key is this, whether you're using a, a, a tree, a shrub, uh, herbaceous nitrogen fixer, a vine, like some sort of legume, pea, uh, vine, or shrub, the key is that the nitrogen fixers are not so generous that they're fixing the nitrogen just to help for the benefit of all of the plants around them. They're doing it for themselves because they're, they figured out, Hey, I can grow. I don't need anyone else's nitrogen. I can grow my own. So these, these plants are, are important in the system, but we've got to manage them because on their own, they'll give up a little bit of their nitrogen in terms of like the leaf litter that falls in the ground or through the root exudates that are giving up some nitrogen as they decay. But if you have nitrogen fixing plants in your system, whether that's a mimosa tree, or it's, it's, it's a pea shrub or pigeon pea or uh, sea buckthorn. There's, you know, there's so many different ones to really use that nitrogen and spread it to the plants around them. You can let nature do its course, or you could do chop and drop where you're cutting down the branches at certain times a year, usually during the, uh, the active season. In some cases, I don't know all the different species, the best time to do chop and drop, but really when there's a lot of nitrogen in the, in that green leafy tissue, you can chop it and chop it and drop it as they call it. And you put those, those prunings, those branches that, or the leafy material, uh, whatever it is around the root system of the trees that you want to support. And that's a way to kind of fertilize using nothing but the air basically. So, cause that nitrogen is coming from the air, but you have to be careful because if you just chop and drop and throw it around your trees, what's going to happen to that nitrogen? How do you know that that nitrogen is going to go into your soil? Cause it's going to just, it, it's the other possibility is that de- it dries out, it decomposes and it floats up to the atmosphere. So some people like to feed the, uh, the prunings or the, the plants, the nitrogen fixing plants to their animals. And then the animals deposit that nitrogen into their manure. And that is less likely to off gas in the atmosphere. But the other way to do it is to just make sure that, you know, you might once a year, you do your drop and drops and you spread the, that leafy material or that woody material around your, your trees and shrubs or the plants that you want to fertilize and then mulch over them. If you can with, if you have wood chips, if you have, uh, it may just mean you have to pile a lot of those prunings to make sure that maybe 50% of them don't off gas, whatever is closest to the soil, the worms can get to the, uh, arthropods can get to and break that down so that the nitrogen goes into the soil and doesn't go up into the atmosphere. I mean, even if you don't try to do that mulching process, you're still going to get what's called root dieback. So let's say you have your nitrogen fixing, uh, autumn olive shrub. If you're pruning that hard every year and it's regrowing every time you prune it, 
it's going to then self-prune some of its root mass to keep in balance. And as that root mass dies, it's releasing nitrogen to the plants around it. So that's the other way nitrogen fixing. So you can do the chop and drop. You can let nature do its course and not touch it at all, or you can just prune it and let the, let the biomass just kind of decompose, but that root biomass is going to feed the plants around it. Okay. That was a lot of information. I guess the, the other thing that we wanted to find here and Mike chime in, if you have anything for beneficial attractors, we want to, in permaculture and in forest gardens, we want to consider ecosystems and not just food, right? Like in gardening, we think we we're growing for food or we're, we're growing for ornamental purposes, landscaping, but I think it's really important to consider ecosystems. And a lot of people want to do what's right. They want to attract hummingbirds to their property and butterflies. But even more than that, we want to have ecosystems that are unseen, like whether that's microbial ecosystems. But usually when we're talking about beneficial attractors, we're talking about things that are going to, it's good for wildlife, it's good for biodiversity, but it is going to come back to a benefit to us. But it's kind of a win-win situation. So a beneficial would be something that is either pollinating, as you attract it in your system, it's pollinating the, the crops that you're trying to grow, the plants you're trying to grow. And some things suffer smaller fruit set or no fruit set if there's things aren't pollinated. Like like you mentioned, mason bees. I visited a farm once that grew, grew strawberries. And because strawberries are composite fruits made up of small little flowers on one strawberry, it has hundreds of little tiny flowers. In when you look at a, a blossom, it's it's every one of those has to be pollinated. So if 50% of the fruit or that flower, excuse me, is pollinated by the by the bee, that fruit is only going to grow so big. But if you can increase the amount of bees that visit that strawberry flower, that strawberry itself is going to grow in size because more of its flowers were pollinated, if that makes sense. By increasing the amount of habitat for pollinators, we can actually improve the yields that we get, both in quality and quantity. And then the other beneficial, oh, Back to pollination, there's things other than bees, there's butterflies and hummingbirds that can, that can pollinate. But then there's also attracting insects that can provide other benefits like parasitoid wasps that lay eggs in, the, uh, in cabbage worms and other plants or other pests. And so if we plant things that are in the, the umble family, so dill, queen anne's lace, they're going to be attracting insects to, to our gardens that are going to have these ecosystem functions. So the other benefit to having polyculture is not just that it's multiple types of food for us, but by having many different types of plants, we're actually attracting different types of beneficial uh, attractors and making our job a little easier. We don't have to pick up as many slugs or as many worms off of our, our plants and then our, our plants are going to be healthier for it. There are lots of ways to attract uh, beneficial, beneficial insects, but really the key is diversity. You want to have lots of things flowering throughout the year, lots of different genus or genera of plants, because each genus is going to attract, in some cases, different types of beneficial insects. So, you know, both in the garden and around the garden, definitely be creative and include as many species and genera as possible. A beneficial doesn't have to, attractant doesn't have to be a plant. It can be even just having water around in a garden, a water source can really make the level of insect diversity and even and birds too, just really explode because especially if you're in a place that gets 
a lot of drought or long periods without rain, just if you have, you know, a bird bath or a small pond or something like that's going to help quite a bit, small solutions that can make big impacts. Yeah. And I guess, and before I, before we move on, I guess the last thing I would say is that generally gardeners, you know, only think of bees as something that is good for your garden, but as Ben pointed out, there are other beneficial insects and we really don't give parasitoid wasps or other beneficials that exist enough space in our garden. So Ben mentioned umbilifers like dill, I should say, but you know, other, there are other umbilifers that you can be planting even at the edges or around our garden that, you know, those plants maybe aren't going to, we're not worried about pests eating them that will function to attract things like parasitoid wasps, which do a lot of a lot of work for us and we don't necessarily recognize it or appreciate it at all. Yarrow is another good one for attracting parasitoid wasps, although it's technically not an umbilifer. It's part of the Asteraceae family. There are a lot of other options out there like cilantro, parsley, many, many different plants that can accomplish this. Fennel is another great plant for this purpose. So like, let's say if you have a garden filled with brassicas, Planting umbilifers like dill all around your garden will benefit you incredibly. And we need to sort of be take a more active role in respecting those beneficial insects that do so much work for us, you know, without any, we, we don't really ask them to do the work. They just, it's just in their nature, which is pretty, pretty badass. Anyways, moving on, I wanted to talk about dynamic accumulators, which are somewhat related to some of the things that you talked about, Ben, with like the chop and drop sort of management style. Dynamic accumulators are essentially plants that gather minerals or nutrients from deep in the soil, generally via taproot, and store them in a more bioavailable form and in high concentration in the actual plant tissue, like in the uh, greens that are growing above ground. And then we will use them by chopping and dropping them as a fertilizer or a mulch. The idea is that they pull minerals that are not freely available in like the top two inches or three or four inches of soil that most plants, you know, their roots exist within. And not all plants have really deep roots that have it, you know, they might not have like a 10 foot long taproot. They can't necessarily access some of the minerals that are deeper in the soil. And when we chop and drop the, you know, the the dynamic accumulator plant, these minerals become available within the higher layers of the soil as they break down. I, I should note that this is one sort of area of not necessarily just permaculture or regenerative agriculture, but this is one area that doesn't have a incredible amount of scientific backup where there hasn't been a lot of studying done, just kind of similar to nitrogen fixation, where we understand that plants fix nitrogen, but uh, there hasn't been like a lot of studying comparing the values of all of the plants, like woody shrubs versus legumes. You know, with dynamic accumulators, it's kind of the same thing, where there hasn't been a ton of research done to back up the real effects of dynamic accumulators, but it's something that's just been passed down from person to person, even before permaculture was, you know, a practice. And it's something that I definitely practice and include, you know, I include dynamic accumulators in my food forest because they're not doing anything bad, certainly. So even if they're not as effective as we give them credit for, they're still very important to include in your, in your uh, forest system, in my opinion. 
So if you believe in the success of these plants, which, you know, take it with a grain of salt because there hasn't been a huge amount of science backup, the minerals that these plants are mining from deep in the soil are minerals such as calcium, magnesium, potassium, uh, nitrogen itself, among other important minerals and elements. The plants themselves that are synonymous with dynamic accumulation, you pre- I mean, primarily we think of Russian comfrey first and foremost, which generally is Bakking 4 or Bakking 14, but also running comfreys. The running comfreys can kind of take over your garden, so be careful of those if you're choosing to use uh, one of those varieties. Generally, people think of comfrey, but it doesn't just need to be comfrey. It could also be stinging nettle. Dandelions are dynamic accumulators. Mullen is a dynamic accumulator. Yarrow, valerian, plantain, different types of plantains like Plantago major or Coronopsis, and many others. Like there's, it's a long list. People generally just think like, oh, Russian comfrey. Yeah, that's my dynamic accumulator. There's lots of dynamic accumulators out there for me to choose from. If you do choose to include them in your forest garden, I would say generally aim for plants with multiple uses. Comfrey, for example, is the chop and drop mulch plant, but it also is a beneficial attractor. And, you know, it's a big bee plant. Bees love it. You want your plants to be fulfilling multiple uses in the forest garden, ideally three or more. So, you know, yarrow, like I was saying before, it can be used as an aromatic pest confuser, beneficial attractor, and apparently, you know, also a dynamic accumulator. But how much interest, you know, how much minerals is it accumulating? We we don't really know. And hopefully someone will do a really in-depth dive into that research very soon so we can start you know, weighing the the benefits of each and every plant. But until then, just, you know, plant the ones you like best. (laughs) Uh, Ben, do you have anything to add? Yeah, it's good advice. And, and, you know, you mentioned comfrey, which is kind of the the go-to for a lot of permaculture people. I think even though, you know, as far as dynamic accumulators saying, oh yeah, plant this if you need more nitrogen or plant this if you need more potassium, like that's still a little, um, you know, not set in stone and not, and the jury's still out on that because it depends highly on the, the content in the soil. You know, if there's no, there's no iron at all, then, you know, there's, it can't actually accumulate, but there's an argument that says there might not be any organic forms of that mineral, but, you know, certain plants can exude certain specific types of sugars to attract bacteria and fungi uh, specifically that can break down the inorganic form, like the inorganic calcium or something, and convert it through its own metabolism of that microbe into a form that the plant can use. So even if the soil is tested not to have that mineral in its organic form, potentially, you know, again, we don't know for sure, but the idea is that by planting those plants around, you're going to be able to free up from the underlying geology some of these minerals that are locked up unless you have the plants, unless you have the, the right biology. There are there has been some studies done on the topic, or at least kind of similar to the topic. I, I like there's something called hyperaccumulators, which are different than dynamic accumulators, in that like the studies specific or the, you know, they essentially could be the same thing, but from what I understand, the studies were more like bringing plants into sites that were really degraded and just full of, you know, heavy metals. And the, the studies showed that plant, certain plants can pull these, these heavy metals out of the soil to improve the soil over time. And then essentially, you know, they were kind of treated like trap plants where you trap all of the heavy metals and then destroy the plant material instead of using it as a mulch. So 
there has been some, you know, scientific research done backing this up, but it's just not in the exact way that permaculture uses it in design systems. You touched on a good point, the difference between dynamic and then just an accumulator or just a hyper accumulator dynamic to me means that it's release, it's, it's cycling, it's, it's accumulating and it's dying. It's accumulating and like the leaves and the roots are constantly being renewed by the plant. Like look at a comfrey plant for those who haven't grown it has fresh new succulent leaves, then old dying withered leaves at the base. So it's constantly releasing whatever it accumulates back to the soil around it. So that's probably specifically the dynamic accumulators is probably where we need uh, we need more research everywhere, but like I, I, I see what you're saying because yes, there are, some plants have been shown to accumulate certain toxic heavy metals or even just particular minerals in general. But the question is, can you plant those plants to then feed the ones around them? That's really the the key that we need to look into. All right, so let's let's move on to our last topic: carbon sequestration. It's one that's dear to me and I think dear to you. Yeah, I could talk. T- for a long time about this. So I'll try to keep it brief. We'll probably do another podcast completely on this topic, but that's carbon sequestration. One of the big differences between forest gardening and regular agriculture, or even just like vegetable gardening in your backyard or homestead. To give an overview, the carbon dioxide in our in our atmosphere is a big problem for climate change, as everyone knows. Hopefully now most people understand that trees and really just photosynthesis in general, it doesn't have to be trees, is a main way to draw down that carbon from the atmosphere and put it underground or in the living biomass of plants. And so, like I said, the driver of that is photosynthesis. It's able to chemically cleave apart the carbon away from the O2 molecule, store it that carbon in the form of sugars or lignins or underground in the form of uh, humus that can then get used by soil microorganisms. But on a massive scale, that can actually have a big impact on the the warming earth and and draw down a lot of that carbon. As growers or gardeners or farmers, you know, the the real clear way to to help with that process is to incorporate more woody biomass on the land. Woody biomass can be trees, it can be shrubs, even just planting raspberries. (laughs) Every, Every bit of woody biomass helps. And then the other ways to reduce the amount of carbon that that is leaving your site is to, if you're someone who does tilling, to either stop altogether or do less tilling, um, low, low till or no till. There's a there's plenty of resources out there to look into. And then also just not letting any area of land be bare soil for very long. You always want to have cover, uh, whether that's cover crops or you're just letting nature kind of reclaim for a year the area. So if you're farming or gardening in the same spot every single year, as opposed to just leaving that bare, maybe get some roots in there so that photosynthesis can keep happening. And by doing so on a massive scale, we can help curb the, the climate crisis. Uh, but it's going to take you know lots of different moving parts, of course, re- reduction of fossil fuels, complete overhaul of the agricultural system. But I think incorporating more trees and doing more forest gardening for multi-strata agroforestry is the number one land use practice for carbon sequestration. It sequesters the most, it's, it's a sequesters fast and it sequesters a very, very high carbon stock. So the actual quantity of carbon that can be held on the land is multi-strata agroforestry. And so it's a really powerful technique. We can't talk about forest gardening or food forest without talking about carbon. 
Mike, do you want to uh, give any response and bring it home? I think the, you, you did a great job putting it all out there. The whole reason to Forest Garden from the get-go is that we are in this very slow destruction of the planet crisis situation that uh, we need to start taking more seriously. We need to stop watering our lawns and make our lawns smaller. Consider wood chips as less of an ugly thing in your yard and more of a soil builder. So much of what we're doing is all about building soil, building diversity, and planting things that are going to outlive us. Really, that's what it's all about. I was thinking maybe to sort of to bring it all home, each of us could just sort of do a very somewhat brief explanation of why we got into this in the first place, you know, because I know why I did. And I feel like I've told you quite a bit, but I'm not sure if I know why you did. Like, what was that initial starter? What were, well, you know, what was your first forest garden foray? Yeah, that's a good question. I th- it was completely theoretical for me. I had never even experienced it before. I, you know, I, I picked up the Edible Forest Gardening book by Dave Jackie and Eric Tonsmeyer, and I was reading that before I'd actually even like seen one in real life. I think I was just interested in the idea, like or the scene in Willy Wonka where they walk into this room and it's like this beautiful paradise where you could eat everything, and I, that just seemed very fun to me. And I was like, oh, if I could try to plant something like that where something's always in season and everything's edible, like that would be, that would be very nice. So I, I looked into all the different types of species and plants um, and then ran across, ran across that book. One of the main, the best experiences, I don't, I can't say that this is the first, you know, my first exposure to it, but really the part where it really clicked for me was I went to Costa Rica and saw some tropical forest gardens in the jungle um, where the overstory uh, there were some avocados, and then the understory, there were mangosteens, and then there were pigeon peas that were fixing nitrogen, and there was root vegetables and sweet potato ground cover. And just, you know, you'd walk through these different areas, and it just kept going. There's just so many different species. It was a really beautiful place called Punta Mona, and they do classes and workshops and retreats and stuff. But yeah, a lot of care and deliberate design has gone into that place. And I think that was, I'd maybe gone into some small, young food forests at that point, but I don't think I really got it until I, until I visited that place. And I was like, Hey, we could do this in the, in the cold climates and the temperate areas of the world. And then I was able to actually visit a couple of places that were, were doing that. So uh, how about you? What, what was your aha moment? Well, it's funny you mentioned, I, I just learned the other day that mangosteen takes like so long, like if you grew it from seed, like it takes like oh, like maybe like decades before it actually starts producing fruit or something, which is crazy because mango, there, there's mangosteen, I believe, on my sister's property, but I don't know if it produces fruit. And I guess, you know, I should say my one of my first introductions to the idea of permaculture or food forestry was sort of completely by accident, just in that my brother-in-law, you know, has been big into it for 10 or more years, but once, you know, once again, in a um, climate that is very different from the one that we live in, in Hawaii. And so I have, ever since I was maybe like 14, and I've been visiting my siblings who live in Hawaii, uh, or no, from age 11, and frequently visiting forest gardens, 
that were just the jungle, you know, just people who planted mango trees in the jungle behind their house 10 years ago or 40 years ago and then moved out and the house was rented to someone else. And it's very common for the edible backyard forest garden to just be a thing at like everyone's home in Hawaii, unless it is a new development or something like that. It's just something that comes along with living in Hawaii and very much that sort of Willy Wonka feeling was in effect. And it wasn't until 2020 or 2019 no yeah 2020 during the pandemic that i saw just a video online of jonathan bates being interviewed about paradise lot and i was just like oh my god they have an avocado tree in their greenhouse and they have an unheated greenhouse in massachusetts that can grow citrus and like what is this and what is sea kale and there's perennial vegetables i can grow here that'll like provide me food in the same way that my sister's property, they you know, do very little work year round besides intensive mowing and weed whacking and uh, you know, just have these abundance of food crops of uh, hundreds of different species falling on the roof literally all the time. And I just didn't know that that could happen on the East Coast in New England. And here are these people who are doing it and they're <laughs> doing an amazing, incredible, inspiring job with it that it just sort of catapulted me into a whole new world. I think earlier when or, you know, when you said that permaculture can be something that can sort of initiate a big change in someone's life and sort of shift their interests into an entire new career path, that is very true. And finding forest gardening for me was the beginning of what now is becoming an entire new career path of something so remarkably different from what I was doing before. So yeah, I, I got a huge, huge thanks to Jonathan Bates and Eric Tonesmeyer. <laughs> shout out to them. Sure. And shout out, I guess, to my to my siblings, for my siblings who initially introduced me. And then, yeah, I guess I also I should mention my grandfather. He's, his, he had an incredible raspberry patch and orchard. And as a small child, I was, oh, you know, blueberries that are still alive today, 80 years old. And you know, in the beginning, like the first, so the first plants I started planting out were raspberries because I was just like, why did we not do this sooner? Grandpa's raspberry garden was amazing. We're all lazy people who are too obsessed with their phones. We need to start putting more like edible shrubs in the landscape. And yeah, yeah that's where I started along, like along with like a rhubarb plant. But yeah. Sure. Well, if you, if you made it this far to any of our listeners, well, bravo, um, packed a lot of information in, so you may have to go back and re-listen if, if you didn't catch anything, but uh, thanks for listening to the end. You got anything else, Mike? I think we're good. Um, yeah, this was a crazy episode, just jam-packed with info. Maybe we'll have to split it up into like two parts or something. But yeah, um, expect a lot more uh, probably specific episodes diving into perhaps, you know, parts of what we talked about more in depth. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.